Let's read Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, John. Let's pray and ask God that he would help us as we work through this part of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way it shows us all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. As we read now and think about this together, please help us to understand, and please work through your word in our hearts, so we might grow in the faith in the Lord Jesus, and that we might grow in godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace. Christianity is all about grace. That's what we've seen as we've travelled through Romans over these past few weeks, uh, uh, past few months. Week after week, we've seen God's grace. Grace is the good news that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead of condemnation, he lavishes us with his extravagant kindness and mercy, with forgiveness with eternal life. Last week, we learned more about that story of God's grace. Remember, we saw how all humanity was once trapped under the reign of sin and death in Adam until God sent us a new king so that grace could overflow to the many who trust in him. And so now, if we trust in Jesus, we reign with him in life. We couldn't fix this on our own. We couldn't deal with our problem. God's grace was our only hope. And I want to say, grace is actually what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions. Every other religion or philosophy sets standards or requirements for how you can reach God, how you can live a good life. 
make this pilgrimage, keep these laws, pray five times a day, reach enlightenment by letting go of your earthly desires, keep these festivals. And the truth is that even secular philosophies take the same approach, right? Here's five ways that you can improve yourself. If there's a problem in society, the answer is always do more. More laws, more education programs, more government action. But Christianity says it is impossible for these things to fix the problem of sin. Our sin is too big. Rules can't change the heart. Our only hope is grace, for God to come down and save us out of his grace. But as we get to chapter 6 of Romans, Paul is dealing here with some objections to grace. Grace is great, but it's also pretty dangerous. It raises the question, does more grace equal more sin? There's a movie called Yesterday. The idea of the movie is that the parents have to say yes to nearly everything the kids want to do. Now, I haven't watched it, and I haven't let my kids watch it either. But they've seen the trailer, <laughs> and they think it's a great idea. In fact, I think that's how they think that Jess and I should parent them. Now, it sounds great to kids, right? All their wants and desires without limits. But we all know it's a recipe for disaster, right? To let kids do whatever they want without any consequence, they might not realise it, but boundaries and consequences are good for them. That's how parents love their kids, by keeping them safe and developing their character and behaviour. So is God's grace just like yesterday? Is it just a disaster that leads to more and more sin with no consequences? It's a fair question. Paul's just spent five chapters showing how Christianity is all about grace, not law. So you can understand why this might come up. If we just throw out all the rules and Jesus takes the consequence for our sin, is that just a recipe for disaster? If we get judged by Jesus' performance, not our own, does that mean it doesn't really matter how we live? Is grace just a license to sin? This objection to grace, it flows straight out of what Paul said at the end of chapter 5. Remember we saw under the reign of Christ where sin increased, grace increased all the more? We took comfort in this, remember? We can't out-sin God's grace. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Which leads us to the objection Paul names in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? If more sin equals more grace, then should we just sin it up to give God more sin to be gracious about? Should we do road rage Monday, slander Tuesday, casual sex Wednesday, greedy Thursday, get drunk Friday, selfish Saturday, knowing that we can come to church on Sunday and hear all about grace? If God forgives me no matter what I do, why do I need to worry about sin in my life? Well, Paul doesn't pull his punches. He tells us what he really thinks of that. Verse 2, by no means. It's very strong in the original language. It's, a, it's literally no way. May it never be. Absolutely not. You've got to be joking. 
This is a total misunderstanding of the gospel. And then Paul spends the rest of the passage showing us why grace actually provides the best motivation for getting rid of sin in our lives. It's summed up in the last part of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our new identity in Christ is totally inconsistent with sinful living. We have died to sin. We're no longer under its dominion and reign like we saw last week. Verse 2 sets us up for how Paul's argument goes in this whole chapter. See, who we are in the gospel shapes how we live in response to God's grace. So Paul is going to end with how we live in response, but he starts with who we are. We are united with Christ. You know, the law tackles sin with rules, but grace doesn't start there. It starts with what we need to know about what God has done for us in Jesus. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, fighting sin starts with knowing who we are in Jesus. It starts with knowing that we are united with Christ. Now, this isn't something we talk a lot about, but our union with Christ, it's actually the most common way that the New Testament talks about our identity as Christians. It's pictured in metaphors like marriage, the temple, the body and clothing, which all point us to a close relationship that we have with Jesus. And then there's all the times, and one day you should count them as you read through, where it says in Christ or in him or things happening to us through Christ or with Christ or Christ living in us. What Jesus does for us in salvation is not an arm's length transaction. He's not some distant substitute. This is personal business for Jesus. We are his chosen people. We are his bride. And that means that we get to share in everything that's his. We acted out a little story here this morning uh, with the kids talk. But you might remember when this actually happened about 20 years ago. When the Tassie girl, Mary Donaldson, married Prince Frederick of Denmark and became Princess Mary. Do you remember? She met Frederick in a Sydney pub during the 2000 Olympics and through marriage she entered into a whole new life. The royal titles, the fame and riches that belonged to Prince Frederick were now Mary's to share. Being united to him in marriage, she was now a princess. And that's a picture of what happens when we trust in Jesus. We are united with him. We now share in everything that's his. His riches, his blessings, all the benefits of what he's done for us. He loves to share them with us. And what is his is now ours by grace. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 6. He starts verse 3 talking about being baptised into Christ and particularly baptised into his death. Remember, baptism is a sign that points to a greater reality. We saw that this morning in Radovan's baptism. 
And Paul's using baptism here as a shorthand way of talking about that greater reality that baptism points to. Talking about our union with Jesus through faith in him. From that moment we put our trust in Jesus, we're connected to him in such a profound way that we share in not only all of his riches, but also his death and resurrection. Through our union with Jesus, Paul says we participated in Jesus' death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. As verse 4 puts it, we were buried with him and so now we share in his new life. When we're joined with Jesus, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And baptism is a vivid picture of our union with Christ. You know, there are different ways that we do baptism. Sprinkling the pictures away that we're cleansed from sin in the new covenant. Pouring the pictures away that the Holy Spirit is poured out on us through faith in Jesus. An immersion where we put someone down into the water as a picture of their old self dying with Christ. And then we raise them up out of the water, all clean, as a picture of Christ washing us and giving us new life. Now remember here that Paul's not saying that this happens through literal baptism. He's talking about the greater reality that baptism points us to. How we're joined to Jesus through faith. Rory Shiner says being united to Christ is like getting on a plane. And whatever happens to the plane happens to me. If it takes off, I take off too. If it crashes into the sea, well, that'll be the end of me as well. If it goes to France, then that's where I'll end up. Just as being in Christ, what has happened to Jesus has happened to me. Our union with Christ has broken the connection of our old sinful self in Adam. That is dead and buried. And the God who raised Jesus has made us alive spiritually now, setting us on a whole new trajectory of living in Christ. But there's more that we should understand about this. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It is like our old self, our old sinful self, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Why? So that our human body that is ruled by sin might be done away with. That our selfish nature has been defeated and disabled so it can't control us anymore. So that we are no longer slaves to sin. You see, far from grace encouraging sin, Jesus actually has broken the power of sin over us when we died with him. Sin no longer rules over us, as if we've got no option but to do what it says. We've been freed from that slavery. All because, in verse 7, anyone who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. The word set free there is literally justified. Sin has lost its power over us because Christ has freed us from its condemnation and judgment. And this is the opposite of what we saw in chapter 1. Remember, God's terrifying judgment against rebellious mankind was to hand us over to our sin so that we were enslaved by our sinful desires. But through this, through Jesus, this is reversed. We're set free from slavery to sin to live for God. 
justified by faith, our sin won't be held against us, and this makes progress against sin right now possible in a way that it wasn't before. My mate Rohan, he had a friend back in Sydney with a pretty rough upbringing. He came from a broken home, and at a young age, he was starting to get into trouble. His friends were a bad influence. He was starting down the road of petty crime, but his uncle, seeing what was happening to him, brought him up to Queensland and gave him a job up here. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him, cutting ties with his old life, setting him on a new trajectory. It helped him get his life in order. Now he's settled down, married with a kid, living in a family home with a stable career. You see, grace is powerful to transform. And for Christians, God has done this to us, but on a much bigger scale. We've been baptised into Jesus' death. God cut our ties with our old way of life. We were trapped as children of Abraham under the reign of sin and death. But now we've been given a fresh start to reign in life. We've been made alive in Christ. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. See, Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in a whole new age. Death no longer has mastery over him. And so united to Jesus, in one sense, our resurrection life begins now. In anticipation of our future resurrection, we live now for God's glory, following the pattern of our Saviour. Verse 10, for the death he died to sin, he, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul says to Christians in Rome and to us, grace does change your life. It all starts with what you need to know before you think about doing anything. Know what God has done for you in Christ. Know who he has made you to be. You are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And that makes all the difference when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives. Now, our, our culture is often telling us, and if you've watched any Disney movie in the last 40 years or 50 years or something, uh, you've heard, be true to yourself. But if you've been reading Romans 1 to 5, you know that that's a bad idea, right? For those in Adam, being true to yourself means living under the reign of sin. Our natural inclination is away from God towards self-destruction. Being true to yourself just leaves us enslaved to shame and selfishness and death. But in Christ, the old me has died and I've been given a new self. Dead to sin, alive to God. And the key to the Christian life is living consistently with that new me. That's why we need to know who we are in Christ, so that we can be who we are. So we, let's adapt our cultural mantra, let's steal it, let's say, be true to your new self. But how? Well, here in these verses, for the first time in five and a half chapters of rich truths about God's grace to us in the gospel, Paul finally gives us some commands about how we should live in response. 
And let's just pause to notice, that's really, really significant. It's taken him so long to get here, especially when right at the start, remember his goal was to bring about the obedience of faith. You can imagine Tertius, Paul's scribe, he's writing the letter, asking him, come on, Paul, shouldn't we tell them something to do yet? I thought you were looking for an obedient church in Rome. Do they really need another chapter of theology? But Paul knows that theology is super practical. We must have a solid foundation of grace before the focus shifts to what we do. Otherwise, we will slip right back into law. So the gospel always starts with what God has done for us. And we are only ever called to do something in response to that. That's grace-motivated obedience. The obedience that really does come from faith. Chapter 6 follows the same pattern. First, we need to know who we are in Christ, and only then do we learn how to live. And here in verses 11 to 13, we get three commands about how to be true to your new self. Consider yourself truly, go zero tolerance against sin, and offer yourself daily. Let's see them. Actually, the first command is still about our thinking. Notice that. Just as Jesus died to sin and lives to God, Paul says to Christians, verse 10, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When you look at yourself in the mirror, don't just think in terms of the way that you used to be, a sinner deserving death. Consider yourself as someone belonging to Jesus, dead to sin and alive to God. That's our reality, according to God. So let's consider like him. Let's consider truly. The Greek word for consider here is legitimai. We saw it back in chapter 4 when Abraham believed God and God counted or considered his faith as righteousness. And here Paul's saying that we need to think about ourselves in keeping with our new identity. No wonder he spent so long doing theology, because that's what equips us to think rightly, to consider ourselves truly. So here in verse 11, we're being commanded to consider ourselves like God in terms of being united with Jesus, dead to sin, alive to God. That requires gospel logic and gospel reasoning, because often it doesn't feel like it fits with the reality of our lives, right? We still struggle with the temptation of sin. This side of heaven, we still fail. Some days we feel more alive to sin and dead to the things of God. But rather than be discouraged by our sin and weighed down by our shame, let's keep considering ourselves as God does. In Christ, I am cleansed of my sin, past, present and future. And even though I can and do still sin, I no longer have to. Change is possible. In fact, more than that, change is guaranteed. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, we will be raised to new perfect life with God when Jesus returns. Tim Keller has a great analogy for this. He says, imagine that a brutal dictator and a, and a terrible military that is controlled by him have total control over a country. And a good army comes in and overthrows them. And they give the capital and the parliament back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers, they still live out in the bush. 
They're still making war on the country as a guerrilla force. Even if they have no actual power left and no prospects of regaining power, the guerrillas can still influence part of the country. And so Paul's saying the way to stifle that ongoing influence is to keep reasoning with yourself, to keep considering, to keep looking to the capital and seeing that the enemy's been defeated, to use the resources of the new government to help you resist its attempted incursions into your life. See how Paul's first command here in Romans is all about our mindset. It's about how we think about ourselves. The story we tell ourselves about what it means for us to belong to Jesus. My old self is dead and gone. Sin's power over me is broken. The risen Jesus lives in me by his spirit and he is empowering me to live a whole new life to God's glory. That's what it means to consider ourselves truly. And so much better than the false stories that we often tell ourselves. We might think, you know, I'll never overcome that sin in my life. It is hopeless even trying. But the truth of the gospel says, no, I'm not ruled by sin anymore. I'm considering myself truly dead to sin, alive to God. I'm free to say no. God's grace makes us optimistic about their ongoing battle against sin. Second command, go zero tolerance against sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is all about actively resisting the ongoing influence of sin in our lives. Since Jesus' death and resurrection have completely overthrown sin's reign over you, don't let sin tell you how to use your body. Stop obeying its evil desires. Sin is no longer on the throne, so don't let it reign. Be true to your new self by adopting a zero-tolerance policy against sin in your life. Jesus taught us, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, don't literally cut off any limbs, but take whatever radical, practical steps are necessary to remove sin's ongoing influence over you. Don't believe the lie of the evil one that a little bit of sin won't hurt you. It does. We know how destructive sin once was over us before Jesus set us free. So now as free people, don't go back to slavery. As you hear God's command to us in Christ this morning, let me ask you, is there a part of your life where you know you are allowing sin to reign? It could be a thought pattern or a sinful way of relating to someone around you, an ungodly habit or addiction. I'm not asking you this to overwhelm you with guilt, but I encourage you in the grace of Christ, be true to your new self. Don't let that sin reign any longer. Get the help you need. Ask another believer you trust to pray for you and keep you accountable as much as you can be radical and serious about eliminating that temptation. When sin, like that guerrilla soldier, knocks on your door, appealing to your old nature, don't invite him in for dinner. Don't let him make himself at home and ask him if he'd like to come back the same time next week. Remember who's in power. 
Your merciful new king is with you and he is empowering you by his grace. We died to sin. Let's go zero tolerance against its influence. Let's refuse to give in to its evil desires. Jesus has set us free to live a new life that is so much more satisfying. And third, offer yourself daily. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Why on earth would we go back to the sin that we've been rescued from? Christopher Ash says that's like an eagle that's tied to a pole, walking sadly around and around. And one day a new owner declares he's going to release the bird and a crowd gathers. The rope is removed. Everyone's on edge. But the eagle keeps walking around and around in the same old rut. Free to fly off, but holding on to its old life of slavery. That's the Christian who keeps offering themselves to sin instead of to the God who has saved us. You've been brought from death to life, so don't offer any of your part of yourself to, to sin and wickedness. Give yourself fully to God. Notice here how resisting sin is more than just saying no to bad things. It is positively offering my whole self, every part of me, as an instrument of righteousness to God. Not to earn my way to God, but as a response to his grace. Freely giving my time, my money, my career, my family life, my words, my sexual desires. Offering them all to God in a new life for his glory. And as an all of life response, this offering has to be a daily decision. When we get up in the morning, I need to remind myself of the gospel narrative, to, to spend the time in Bible and in prayer, to soak in this better story of who I am in Christ, to recommit to offering every part of myself to my new master today, seeking his help to live consistently with grace, to offer myself to God for righteousness. Verse 14 sums it up. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. See, far from encouraging sin, Paul says here in Romans 6 that grace is the very best master. It changes us in a way that rules and religion can never come close to. More grace doesn't lead to more sin. It's the opposite. But first we need to know who we are. United with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive with God. So be true to your new self. When you're in that conversation, you remember that juicy piece of gossip that you could share to boost your status and put someone else down. When you're in an argument with your spouse and you really want to say that thing that you know will really hurt them. When an opportunity arises to be generous by helping out a friend and you know it's going to cost you time and effort and energy. When it's late at night and you're drawn in lust to watch what you shouldn't. Whatever else it is that you struggle with. When temptation comes, be true to your new self. Consider yourself truly dead to sin and alive to God. Go zero tolerance against sin. Don't invite it in for dinner. And offer yourself daily to God for righteousness. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that if we trust in him, we have died to sin and been raised to new life, that we live for you. Father, forgive us for the times that we've given in to sin. Help us, Lord, to consider ourselves truly when we attempted to remember that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we have died to sin and we live to you. Help us not to tolerate sin in our lives, but to go zero tolerance against sin, not let it reign. And help us, Lord, not only to not offer ourselves to sin, but offer ourselves truly to you. Our loving Father has shown great grace to us in Jesus. Grow us to be more and more like him, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.